minister hat. Let's get rolling. So this is actually ironic because last week was kind of unexpected. My dad got COVID. We learned about it Sunday morning. We're rapidly trying to adjust. We make it work. You guys were awesome. Thank you so much. But this sermon was one that I had been eyeing for a while and was planning to do anyway. So this one I am ready for. And I'm very excited to be able to discuss it with you. This story has always fascinated me. It's always really challenged me. And I know it sounds weird when I tell you what the story is because many of you heard it from the time you were in cradle roll or in bridge builders or whatever. But this story has captivated my imagination. It's captured my thoughts. And it's one of my favorite to study about and talk about. In fact, I've never had a youth group that I haven't given a class on this. There hasn't been a church that I've attended that I haven't given a lesson on because this is one of my all-time favorite Bible stories. But I always have a deal with myself that I'll never give the same lesson twice because there's not two churches that are the same. And so as I was re-studying for like the bajillionth time this, it's amazing. How even though I've come back and back and back to this story, Every single time I open God's word, he blows my mind by showing me things I never considered. A lot of the stuff that we're going to be talking about tonight I didn't know. This morning, time challenged. I didn't know. A lot of things we're going to be looking at I hadn't thought of. That's the beauty of the Holy Spirit and the beauty of the Bible. I hope this lesson is as interesting to you as it was to me. And if it's not, don't worry. You're only going to be stuck here for like 20 minutes, so... Buckle up, and if you learn something new, great. If not, then we'll be done soon. The sudden calm. Same boat, different storm. We started a series about a month and a half ago in which we were on the seaside, seaside stories. We talked about, I don't know if you remember this, many moons ago, that the seaside is a very important metaphor in the Bible. The sea, a representative of chaotic evil. It's the source of darkness and destruction. It's the thing God had to subdue in the beginning. It's the thing that he's always been fighting since. The dry ground, by contrast, is the place where God is, the refuge, where we find our solid footing. So it would make sense that the seaside was a very important place where the chaos meets the order, where right meets wrong, where good meets evil. But the storm on the sea is vastly different. Because in this, there is no solid footing, there is no refuge, there is no place to hide. You are surrounded and immersed in the chaos. And there are times in life, at least in mine, I don't want to speak for you, where I feel like my life is thrown into chaos. Where I'm not on a seaside. I don't have stable ground. I feel like I'm on a boat in the middle of the storm. Looking around desperately for anything to hold on to and not with any luck. So we're going to be looking through these stories over the next couple weeks on how we should respond when faced with the storm. Now, this may disappoint you or this may excite you, depending on who you are. This is not a typical Bishop Darby-like super deep dive lesson, right? We're not going to be talking about the Nephilim or quoting First Enoch. This is just going to be a really basic sermon. But sometimes those are the most powerful because the truth is the Bible don't have to be difficult. They just have to be beautiful, and they always are. Mark chapter 4. Oh, yeah, if you want the notes so you don't have to keep flipping around, there's the QR code. It has all the notes from this morning's lesson as well as all the verses. Um, I'll give you a second and stall so you guys can do that. Do, 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 do. Good. 
still see some clones out. Okay. Apparently the one struggling the most is my wife. <clears throat> it's okay, you've already read it. Mark chapter 4, verses uh, 36 to 41 is where we're going to be today. The text reads like this. So after leaving the crowd, they took him along, just as he was, in the boat. And other boats were with him. Now a great windstorm developed, and the waves were breaking onto the boat, so that the boat was nearly swamped. But he was in the stern, that is Jesus, sleeping on a cushion. And they woke him up and said, Teacher, don't you care that we are about to die? So he got up and rebuked the wind and the sea and said, Be quiet, calm down. The wind stopped, and it was dead calm. And he said to them, Why are you cowardly? Do you still not have faith? They were overwhelmed by fear and said to one another, Who is this then? Even the wind and the seas obey him. Now, the way I like to approach these biblical stories is to step into the narrative. Very important that we engage our imagination, engage our brain. If we don't do that, we're going to miss the point. So I'm going to invite you to step into the story with me. And let's unpack the text so we can really understand what's going on here. First, there's this really interesting Greek word. Okay, I may have lied a little bit. There is some nerdy stuff, just a warning. This Greek word is used to represent the storm on Galilee. These storms, these seismos, was very, very damaging. The reason why was because the Sea of Galilee was 600 feet below sea level, with mountains high in the east. The east. The east, I don't know where, where we are on the map, but wherever the east is, that's where they were. I'm always facing north. That's just how I roll. But in this situation, the way it's um, functioned is that the clouds, when they come in, they get caught and they can't escape the Sea of Galilee. The clouds come and they can't get over the mountains, so they build up and build up and build up, and you have cold pressure fronts meeting hot pressure fronts, and you get storms over the Sea of Galilee that fast. You think Ohio is bad with weather. This area is terrible. You could be sitting there having a wonderful picnic by the seashore, and then 10 minutes later, it's a torrential downpour. This is where they found themselves, this unexpected storm, a storm they couldn't have been ready for. There was no preparation for, and yet it encompassed them entirely. A terrifying tropical storm. I love how we, we always say that, well, these are experienced fishermen. Right? We say that all the time. If the storm was bad, it must have been really bad for them because they were experienced fishermen. May I remind us a lesson that we talked about a couple weeks ago? The oldest of the apostles wouldn't have even been 18 years old. These guys weren't experienced in anything. These are kids. Sure, their dads were fishermen. And sure, they kind of knew the ropes a little bit. But I've been in a boat with Norman. Don't know if you want him driving through a storm. Plus, it didn't really even matter. You could be the greatest fisherman in the history of the world back then. You didn't have much chance against the surprise storm. We actually know this because, again, last Greek nerdy word. There is a Greek word here that represents the kind of boat they would have been on. And they actually discovered one of these in 1986. It was actually labeled for us, which is really nice. There was a big drought that hit that area, and the sea began to evaporate. And it revealed a ship crashed on the side of a shore against some rocks a ship that they dated in the first century that was labeled as this. 
It was about 30 feet long and 8 feet wide, so it was very, like, long and narrow, kind of like a pencil. There would have been a mast for some sails, some small sails, but mainly it was a rowboat. But the problem is, I don't know how many, like, boat people we have here. That's not a great design for a boat, especially a storm when a storm is brewing. Eight feet wide is basically me on my side. That's not strong enough to be able to hand smashing winds or waves coming into the boat. It wouldn't have mattered if these guys were the greatest, uh, the greatest captains and admirals in the history of the world. If that storm happened to anyone while they were on that ship, they were in trouble. So what you have here is an unexpected storm and a vessel that can't handle the impact. Unexpected storm meets a vessel that's not ready for the impact. And not only that, but was captained by a bunch of people who couldn't hope to overcome it. I want you to take a moment and imagine John. John is my favorite to relate to. John, I don't know if you remember. Uh, Henry, would you mind standing up just real quick? Thank you. Henry Sater, uh, we used this analogy a couple of uh, weeks ago. That would have been roughly the age of the Apostle John. Get that mental image in your head. Okay, thank you, Henry. You can sit down. I didn't tell him we were doing that. I'm sorry. I'm going to get yelled at afterwards. But that image is what I want you to get in your head. Imagine John holding desperately a rope together as a storm is coming up as he's frightened for his life. As the oldest one there, Peter, also terrified for his life, is trying really, really hard to keep his composure so he doesn't freak out the rest of the kids. All of them expecting for the worst. And then over top of the waves and the rain and the storm and the thunder and the lightning crackling and the screams of John in the back, the one sound that you hear coming from the top of the ship is, as the Son of God lays asleep on a pillow. Can you imagine the frustration and the anger of Peter? as he's trying so desperately to save these people's lives, and the Son of God, who is literally less than 30 feet away from him, is asleep on a cushion. He lasted a lot longer than I would have. I mean, the first raindrop hits, and I'm waking Jesus up. They're at the point of death, and he's still asleep. It's amazing. We often come at the story with a critical lens, judging the faith of the apostles. But what if I told you that this story has nothing to do with faith? This story has to do with something entirely different. As we see an unexpected storm conquering a vessel that's not ready for it with people who couldn't handle it. There's one other key point I want us to make about this. We talk a lot about the metaphor of water. It's very important throughout the Bible. But in particular, I always found it interesting the way that the apostles ended this little narrative with the statement, who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? I mean, not to be rude, but he's already resurrected some guy from the dead. He's fought demons. He's fed people with like a loaf of bread. This is not the most exciting. This isn't even the most exciting like wind narrative that he was in. I mean, remember the time he walked on the water during this kind of storm? This wasn't even the most incredible thing he did on water. And yet it was this story that captured the minds of the apostles and the disciples. Why? The beginning of time, God has had this cosmic struggle with water. And most notably was one story that really, really captured the eyes of the Israelites, the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. Remember that story? There's actually a lot of parallels between this story and that one. You had a bunch of people caught in an unexpected circumstance, 
unprepared, they didn't have an army, as the Egyptians were closing in with people who didn't know how to lead them out of it. And in that story, God parted the waters, took away the chaos, and let them clearly run on dry ground. And it was actually from that moment that most of the Jewish fathers write about how that was the key moment to Israelite history. If that moment didn't happen, they would have died on the seashore and that would have been it. But this story saved them. And so you have the psalmist writing hundreds of years later. These are three different psalmists, by the way, behind me. You had all the psalmists writing about this key and pivotal moment, this beautiful moment when God parted the Red Seas and saved people. It was the signature move of God. The signature moment, if you will. The thing everyone remembered about it. I will never forget LeBron James's block on Andre Iguodala. It's beautiful. It's a work of art. Sure, LeBron James can go on and win. I don't care how many championships. But that's the moment when I think of LeBron James, I'll think of. I have a signature, like, moment in our relationship. Do you? That moment when you knew, okay, maybe this is real, right? And for me, I wish it was, like, something awesome, like the rain was falling and, you know, there was, like, the sweet speech that was given. No, I made the dumbest joke at a youth group class I have ever made in my life. I said it. I regretted it. I wish I could, like, pull the words back and shove them back in my mouth, and I didn't. And then I hear the snicker, and it was her. And that was the moment of, like, she's going to support me through anything. Believe it or not, that was actually the moment I realized I was in love with Madison. Go figure. But we have these signature moments, right, that define relationships. And that define people, that define images. And it was this one for God, the Israelites, God's signature moment, his victory over the chaotic waters, his crossing of the Red Sea, his deliverance of the people. The God of Moses, who forever saved the people by splitting the waters in half. And here we go. A new signature moment. By the God of Moses, done on the waters See, one thing that we, we got to capture here is if we're walking into the narrative, we have to walk into it expecting to be Jews in the first century, understanding that importance that's talked about, God controlling the waters, God controlling the waves, God controlling the storm, God controlling it all. And that's really important because when they saw this, they didn't see some guy calming a storm. They saw God splitting the Red Sea in half. They saw God flooding the world. They saw God controlling the water as he always had done. The signature power of God, the God over the chaos, this key moment defined Jesus' ministry. The first time that they stopped seeing him as just Jesus, the carpenter's son, who can do some cool party tricks, and Jesus, the son of God, the creator of the universe. Pretty big deal. So what are we to make of this story? That is the story. Bunch of kids scared in an unexpected storm on an unworthy vessel with no experience on how to manage it. And then the creator of the universe does what the creator of the universe always does, which is control the chaos and bring it to order. So what are we to make of this? What are we supposed to do with it? Well, the original sermon I was going to give involves this. The early church fathers had a whole bunch of stuff written on this story because as it impacted the Jews, it also impacted them. And they believed it was a surprise attack. That this was the moment where, where Satan started to really take notice of Jesus. Jesus, at this point, had already done a whole bunch of compassionate miracles and saved a lot of people. And so Satan needed to do something here. Satan, who has control over the chaos, over the storms, 
bunch of textual references of that. He incited this storm to either kill the apostles or at the very least freak them out so they'll leave Jesus and his project alone. And if he's very lucky and he strikes gold, then maybe, just maybe, one of those lightning bolts can go away and strike the Son of God himself. Problem solved. That's what the church fathers thought. The surprise and desperate attack of Satan feeling his grasp over earth being lost. Didn't work. Instead, it became Jesus' victory. And originally, my sermon was going to end with this really cool like line of like, See, even Satan's greatest victories can become God's greatest victories. And I think that would have been a fine lesson. We would have walked out of here and high-fived, and that would have been that. But as I kept studying, I found something more. Something that I, I thought was more challenging to at least me. And since I'm the one with the microphone, more challenging to hopefully you. These three ideas this story taught me. This was the moment that Jesus went from Messiah to Creator. The moment in the life of the apostles when Jesus was more than just the compassion ministry guy, but the one who can control and destroy the chaos. Second, I see this really interesting facet. Something I never noticed in the story before because it's kind of a throwaway line. This was not the only boat on the Sea of Galilee that night. It wasn't even the only boat of disciples on the Sea of Galilee that night. It says at the very beginning of Mark chapter 4, if you have your little notes, you can kind of scroll back up and see that, that they left the crowd right? He left the crowd with the apostles, and they got in a boat. But then the other crowd, the people in the crowd, wanted to follow Jesus too, and so those who had boats loaded up in and followed him out into the water. But there was only one boat that had Jesus on it, and only one boat that could calm the storm. And finally, doubt of disinterest. Jesus was frustrated as apostles, understandably so, but not because they questioned him or not because they doubted him, but because of what they said to him. A very important line that reframes this story. I got 10 minutes. I got these last three points. You're doing the math. It's a little more than three minutes a point. Buckle up. Messiah to creator. Gaining trust. Jesus understood something really important. People don't care about power. There's a lot of power in the world. There is. There is a lot of things that are stronger than you. There are a lot of things that can kill you, a lot of things that can subdue you, a lot of things that can control you. Power is not that special. So when God came to earth, he didn't start with the demonstration of power. If I was God, that's what I would have done because I'm a broken human, right? I would have come down, I would have come down on a golden chariot led by angels with an angelic host behind me carrying a giant flaming sword. I would have stabbed that joker in the ground and been like, I'm here. Now come to me. But Jesus didn't. He chose the exact opposite of everything I would have done. He went to a manger, grew up a carpenter's son. Then he lost his dad, so he didn't even have him. He grew up with a mom and a couple of children in poverty, worked his way into intelligence through the temple, gathered a couple of other kids who were at misfits, and then started his ministry that way. That is not what I would have done. But it's important because Jesus understood that you start making an impact in people's lives when they know you care about them. I was taught at a young age in youth group and classes apologetics, which are fine. But I was taught apologetics before I understood love. I was taught apologetics. I could tell you why God existed before I actually believed in him. And I definitely could argue the existence of him far more than I could argue the reasons I love him. 
And that's hard. That's profoundly challenging, concerning. I grew up knowing God is my creator. And I never took the time to understand what it meant that God is my Messiah. The one who went up on the cross for me. Who took my sins with him. Who loved me so much that he didn't even care about himself. And was willing to die for me. Let me ask you a question. In your life, do you follow that pattern? Do you follow the pattern of Jesus? Up to this point, if you, are, if you have your Gospel of Matthew open, if you didn't do the notes, I, should, I, I couldn't fit the whole Gospel of Matthew in here, I'm sorry. Go back a couple chapters, what's going on? Jesus is healing people, he's feeding them bread, he's taking care of them, he's showing the people, I care, right? I care about you, I care about you, I care about you, I love you. And in this time, he really only gave one sermon. Another really impactful thing. If you take the amount of time in the Bible that Jesus spent talking and the amount of time that Jesus spent doing things, it's like six to one. Actually, that's, it's not, it is six to one. Six to one. He does six things for every word he speaks because that's important for faith. It's not about what we say. It's about what we do. We have to start understanding Jesus as Messiah. Understanding he's the one who does things for you because he loves you. Taking that love and doing it to the world. Not standing up on our pedestals and screaming why we're right. Or on Facebook or whatever. Laying it all down. And treating people with the same love that the Messiah Jesus did. Second, how do you view God? This is where it gets a little introspective. This is the part in Bible class I would say, kids, I don't want an answer here because that would just be awkward for all of us. But how do you view God? Honestly and truthfully. Is he your creator? Or your Messiah? Or both? I think the church does a really good job of painting him as creator. But God doesn't want to be known by you because of his power. He wants you to know him because of his love. Do you know that love? Have you experienced that love? And if you haven't, what can you do today to start falling in love with God? Understanding that he is Messiah and creator, not one or the other. Next, I want us to consider how the story asks us to choose a boat. There were a lot of boats that you could have been on that night. Maybe there were better ones, longer ones, stronger ones, whatever. They, they weren't the right boat. In this scene, I'm kind of reminded of that Indiana Jones movie. You know what I'm talking about? The Holy Grail. The one with the, the old beat-up cup. You have chosen wisely. No? I'm hoping, okay, come on, guys. This is an iconic movie here. Like, I'm not referencing some obscure 80s film. Good gracious. Okay, yes, there is a scene in that movie, I'm assuming you all know, I'm just assuming you're asleep, that, yeah, that, that he looks out and he sees this old beat-up cup, and everyone's like, ooh, I wonder which one Jesus drank out of, the really ornate one, the beautiful one, the gold, no, he drank out of the old beat-up wooden one because that's Jesus. In the same way, there's so many boats, right, out on the water, and if I was one of the disciples and I was piling in, yeah, sure, Jesus is in that boat, but that's Apollyon, and that's tiny, that's not going to stand up to a storm. I'm going to go to this dude's yacht. I'm going to be sitting in cushioned. I'll get close. I'll still hear Jesus, right? I'll hear Jesus. He's in that boat right there. He's not too far away from me, but I'm going to stay right here in this, in this little spot. I'm going to be sitting on this little cushion here. Rock. Maybe I'll have some water. It'll be nice. 
and yeah, yeah, if I need to hear Jesus, I can, I'm here, yeah, okay, cool, move on. That's not the right boat. The right boat is an old beat-up one. It's scary. It's ill-prepared for the storm. It's not ready for the waves. But it's the one with the, the Messiah and Creator on it. Sometimes I think we spend our entire life on that cushioned boat right beside the right one. Because there's things in our life we're just not comfortable giving up yet. There's just things that we don't want to let go of yet. I like my house. I like my, my wealth. I like my position. I like my status. I like my job. I like it all, and it's great. And then I find Jesus, and he's really cool too. But I'm going to stay in my boat, and I'll just crane over to catch him every once in a while. If that was Christianity, folks, man, oh man, I would be such a better Christian. But as it is, I'm not. Why? Because that's not Christianity. Christianity is Jesus saying, get out of your boat and come to mine. Mine's going to have storms. There's going to be water that's going to get in. It's going to knock you around. There's lightning threat. But I'm here. And when the chaos gets out of control, I'll stop it. What boat are we on? What boat? Are you on? And finally, I have nine seconds. We're going long. Jesus loves you, the end. Doubt of disinterest. So many times in the ministry of the apostles, Jesus, Jesus dealt with his apostles doubting him. It was a part of it. it. Happened all the time. And never, never did Jesus get mad at them for it. Which, by the way, is the biblical model. Let's go back. There's this guy named, you know, Jacob. His name would literally be changed later to Israel, kind of an important figure. What did he do in Genesis chapter 32? He wrestled with God. Why? Because he doubted. Habakkuk chapter 1, Habakkuk, one of the oracles of God. Habakkuk chapter 1 starts with, why, O Lord, are you silent to my cries? What was he doing? He was doubting. What about Micah? What about Hosea chapter 4? What about Isaiah, most of the book? What about Jeremiah, most of two books? is a part of the faith. You can't have one without the other. Wish you could, but you can't. But notice that God's not mad here at the apostles for doubting his ability to calm the storm. That was understandable. Up to this point, Jesus had done some pretty cool stuff, but stopping a giant storm is something else. That wasn't why Jesus was upset. He wasn't upset. He didn't call them ye of little faith because they doubted his ability to save. Why did he get mad? Look back at the story. Mark chapter 4, verse 38. Teacher, do you not care about us? That was the triggering word for Jesus. He didn't say, can you do anything about it? This is when Jesus would have made some snarky remark like, can I? <laughs> yes. No. This is where he got frustrated because they doubted, not his ability to save, but his ability to care. That was the pressure point for Jesus. Jesus has no need to prove to us his power. Why would he need to? He's the son of God. But Jesus desperately wants you to know that he cares about you. They, weren't, they were doubting his power, yes. They were doubting his role as savior, yes. But when they doubted his interest in them and their well-being, that's when Jesus was mad. 
Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, the end of the Gospel of Matthew ends in this line, and look, I am with you every single day to the very end of the age. In 1 John chapter 4, 18, this is a very profound one to me, and one that, boy, it makes me struggle. There is no fear in love. Complete love drives out fear. There is no fear in love. What was the apostles' flaw here? Was it doubt? No. Was it being angry at God? No. Did Peter accidentally raise his voice too high to the Son of God? Of course. But that's not why Jesus was mad. Jesus was mad because these guys who he has done so much for, who he has cared for so thoroughly, who he has done everything for, he has given them life and meaning. He has laid down his life for them, put himself at risk for them. They still didn't get it. And guys, I'm going to be honest. Camera people, I'm moving. Just a heads up. Sorry. Just to be honest with you, I don't get it. Because I do the same thing. I want so badly to get mad at the apostles. You idiots. You had it all. Why do you still doubt God's love for you? Then what in the world is my excuse? Because I saw the cross. I've, I've experienced the risen Savior. There's an empty tomb and it's changed my life. I'm here today being touched and moved by a Holy Spirit. I have a family here that I connect with and love and can stand by. Why? Because Jesus loved me that much. And yet when bad things happen in my life, what is my go-to? God, why would you? How could you? Do you even care? And through the ages, I hear Jesus' voice echoing back from that storm. Why do you still doubt me? Not my power. Not my strength my love. Do you doubt God's love? Because there's one thing I can tell you. I don't know much. Not that bright of a guy. Got one thing I can tell you 100% of the time. There is nothing more profound than God's love for you. Nothing more transformative, nothing more life-changing, and nothing more immense. True power is not in control. True power is not seen in violence. True power is not seen in the ability to orchestrate all these massive events. True power is demonstrated when a carpenter's son died on a tree for a failure like me. And that is the beauty of my Messiah and Creator. Where are you? Do you know God? Do you doubt His love? What boat are you on? These stories provide so much for us. So much that can challenge us. So much that can bring us closer to him. But I'd like to end with this phrase. It doesn't matter where you are right now. Because I can tell you where Jesus is. He's in your life changing you. Working on you. And loving you.